tonight. Turning your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And now, Father, we give attention. Our hearts tuned into your voice. We trust, we believe, we, we know that we're holding not another book, another holy book, what some would consider to be Scripture, but we're holding something that was breathed, inspired by the Holy Spirit, though penned by human authors, is inerrant, is infallible, contains your mind, your will. And as a template for the churches, as we read these letters in the New Testament, it is a template for how you want us to think and how you want us to live. There's, there's a value system here that clarifies so much of the way we are to conduct ourselves. And we're thankful that it, is, it has been preserved for us that we can read and apply, and we pray that the Holy Spirit of God who lives in each one of us who are saved would help us, Lord, to make these real in our own lives, these truths. The truth is, Lord, we want to be changed. We don't want to stay the same. We want to be able to say we're growing. By your grace, we're improving from glory to glory into the same image as that of Christ. So, Lord, we do expect you to speak to our hearts, to deal with our attitudes in our lives this evening as we read, as we sit in your presence, like family gathered once again in a great living room. We want you to deal with our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. What would it be like to travel with Paul the Apostle, to work with him or to work for him? Now, I know that might sound exciting to you, but quite honestly, I think it would be difficult for me. Paul was a very strong personality. He was a man of singular vision. And the people around him best have that vision or they will eventually part ways. Barnabas was a close friend. They parted ways. John Mark, a close associate, they parted ways. And in the end, Paul said, I don't have anyone who's like-minded except one, and that's Timothy. I did travel once with somebody that reminded me of Paul. Now, I say reminded me, but, of course, having never met Paul, I can't speak authoritatively, but he reminded me of what I assume Paul to be like based upon what I've read. And I think that I've read enough of Paul's writings that I think I could say I, I sort of know him. And uh, his name is Sammy Dagger, this guy that I have been on many occasions with around the world. And on one occasion, we were in Amman, Jordan. We were ready to go to Baghdad, Iraq, not long after we had bombed them. And I was there to take medicine and some of your shoe boxes to the children who were over there. And we were going to represent uh, the Lord and give them in the name of the Lord and tell them that God loves them and that we love them. And so 
I was in Amman, Jordan with my wife and my son. And uh, my son wasn't present, but my wife was. And Sammy turned to me with a big smile and he goes, Brother, are you ready to die? I said, pardon me? He goes, we must always be ready to die. I go, thank you very much. And he says, you know, you're, you're, uh, you're going into Baghdad, and, and you're an American, and he's a uh, Lebanese, and you know what you did to, uh, to uh, Baghdad. I, I didn't do anything to Baghdad. Don't blame me for that. And, and Sammy was just and is a go-getter. He'll share the gospel with anyone and everyone. When I was with the princess of Jordan, who had a huge entourage of bodyguards, Sammy didn't care who she was. Sammy just shared the love of Christ with her and the gospel so powerfully. And when we were at the border trying to cross over and the UN had closed off the border for us to get in, he didn't care. He just he shared the gospel with them. And that's why it took us so long to get there. And I'm thinking, you know, Sammy, uh, you're pretty outspoken. You're, you're going to get us into trouble. But he didn't care. <laughs> and, uh, and I think, you know, I just observed him and I thought, Paul the Apostle must certainly have been a lot like Sammy Dagger. What would it be like to follow Paul around? Well, let's begin in his early life. As soon as he came to Christ, he went to what city? What was the first city he was in? Damascus. As soon as he was saved, what did he do? Told people about Jesus. And the Jewish elders figured out a plot to kill him. And so they had to take and put him in a garbage basket and lower the basket on the outside of the wall so he could flee town. He goes to Antioch. The Jews in Antioch hire influential people to get Paul ousted out of their city. He goes to Iconium and Lystra and Derbe. And in Lystra... They take him outside the city and stone him, thinking he's dead. That's what it's like to be around Paul. Paul survived the stoning, got back up, and went back into the city that stoned him. That's what it's like to be around Paul. I would say, Paul, take a clue. Jesus said, wipe the dust off your feet, go to the next town. He goes, no, I'm going back in. When he was in Athens and the intellectual elite of Athens thought he was some metaphysical idiot speaking of the resurrection, he boldly proclaimed the gospel. Some received, many didn't. He had to leave their town. He went over to Corinth. They kicked him out of their town. When he was in Ephesus, he created a riot so that in the great amphitheater there in, in Athens, for a couple of hours, the Athenians, the um, Ephesians shouted, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And they were about to tear Paul in two, so they had to deliver him from that town. Then he goes back to Jerusalem, and he always wanted to share the gospel in the temple with his own people, being a Jew, having a heart for them. So he goes back for a great feast, pays for a couple of fellows to take a vow. He takes the vow with them. People spot him in the temple courts, make up a rumor about him. They arrest Paul, and they're about to kill him. A Roman soldier intervenes and Paul says, tell you what, let me just speak to the people. I'm one of them. If I speak to them, they'll listen to me. Yeah, right. So he gets up and he talks to the men of Israel and the promises that have been made have been fulfilled in Jesus the Messiah. 
And uh, they got all upset at that. And Paul says, I'm going to the Gentiles. They got all upset at that. Paul goes from there to Caesarea for two years in prison. Appealing to Caesar, he goes from Caesarea to Rome to stand before Caesar as a prisoner. That's what it's like to follow Paul, to be on his team. And frankly, he's the major leagues. I'm way, way, way the minor leagues. I get convicted when I read of this man. Would to God that I could become a man of faith like that. I'm not even close. Through all of that stuff, through all of the trials, all of the beatings, all of the rumors, all of the stonings that he's going to discuss in the next few chapters, he kept going, he kept traveling. There was a passion in his heart to see people who were blinded come to the light and one to Christ. He strengthened the churches after he founded them. He wrote letters of correction, letters of encouragement. And, and this is where we find him tonight, Paul is about to take an offering, a financial offering. He's going to ask the Gentile believers to dig deep and support not his ministry. Remember that. He never asked people to support his ministry. He never sent out pledge letters for his own ministry. But he was aware of the needs of other people. And he is asking the Gentile churches, principally in Greece where Corinth is. Remember, Corinth is in that little uh, Peloponnesian peninsula at that southern end of of, uh, the geography of Greece. And he's going to take an offering from them as well as the churches north up in Macedonia, the churches of Philippi and Thessalonica. And he's going to get these Gentile, non-Jewish churches to support Let's call it the mother church, shall we? From from whence all of these things started in Jerusalem. Jewish believers. He's going to take an offering from the Gentiles and bring it to Jerusalem. And this is sort of like foreign missions in reverse. Whereas often you have the home church supporting mission endeavors that go out. Now the foreign mission churches are taking a collection for the home church because they are suffering financially. Now, why were they suffering financially back in Jerusalem? Well, for a few reasons. Reason number one, the principal employment in Jerusalem was the temple. There were a lot of businesses, but, you know, that was the big business. Just like, what's the big business in Rio Rancho? Intel. I mean, there's other businesses, but that's the big dog. That's the temple. And most of the jobs in Jerusalem were somehow related to the temple since thousands of lambs were sacrificed. So there was not only the Levitical priesthood involved, but there was auxiliary jobs that fed into the temple. Well, who ran the temple? The Sadducees ran the temple. What did the Sadducees believe in? Well, they didn't believe in. We can define them what they didn't believe. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in spirits. They didn't believe in a bodily resurrection. What was the one message the early church preached? That Jesus had risen from the dead. And so just as in the Gospels, the Pharisees were the principal enemies of Christ, now in the book of Acts, the principal enemies of the early church in Jerusalem were the Sadducees. They didn't believe in the resurrection. That was the principal message that defined the early church. 
So they're running around saying, Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, is alive. He's risen from the dead. They didn't believe in it. It created a furor. And uh, many of these Jewish believers lost their employment, became very poor. To counteract that, the early church in the book of Acts, beginning in chapter 2, pooled their resources together. Remember, they sold their possessions, their homes. They pooled the money together and they distributed to everyone as they needed. It was a beautiful communal kind of ministry. But obviously they had run out of funds. That's factor number two. The community pool was now empty. Factor number three, there was a famine And if you add famine to losing your job and the community welfare system draining, you have a poor group of people. In chapter 11 of the book of Acts, Agabus, who was a prophet, predicted a famine that would be worldwide. And the scripture records that it did indeed come to pass. So those in Jerusalem were also suffering. I find it interesting that Of all of the guys that Jesus had working for him, the great Apostle Paul, a Jewish rabbi, spent so much time among the Gentiles taking up a collection for the Jewish church in Jerusalem. Why do you suppose Paul got so personally involved? Think back. Think very carefully. Why did Paul the Apostle get so personally involved with the church at Jerusalem? Because he was their principal persecutor at one time. He was the guy who when Stephen in Jerusalem was being stoned to death, they took and laid their clothes at the feet of Saul. Acts chapter 9 verse 1 begins, And Saul, breathing out threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord. He began in Jerusalem. And he felt that he owed them a great debt. He persecuted them. Now he wanted to help them. So, in chapter 8 and chapter 9, he's going to spend some considerable time talking about what a lot of preachers like to talk about, and that is money. But he does it in a very tasteful way. Um, Let me just begin by saying, and you say, we haven't even started the chapter yet, and you're already 15 minutes into it. That's all right. Remember, this is verse by verse. We We have the until Jesus comes, so... I mean, not tonight. Don't worry, we're going to break on time. But <laughs> Understand something about money. Money is not evil. The Bible doesn't say that. It says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And you can be poor and have love for money and get caught up. You can make that your principal God that you serve. Money is not evil. Money is not good. Money is neutral. It depends on how one uses money. If he utilizes it for the glory of God or utilizes it for selfish purposes or demonic purposes. And in some cases, even in the scripture, God blessed people financially. Not everyone. It's not our birthright, as some people say, to name it and claim it and get rich in the name of Jesus. But for instance, in the New Testament, there's a gift called the gift of giving. Well, you have to have something to be able to exercise that gift. 
And I believe that God will entrust great wealth to people whom He knows are trustworthy. They'll handle it right. They won't get caught up with it. Other people, it would be a mistake for God to bless financially because they'd be so selfish with it. God knows what you can take. And I've seen many people who get rich who have an abundance of money and they're tortured, tormented people. Money did them in. So you can be, if you don't have money, you can be thankful for God's blessing on your life. Good way to look at it. But God blessed Abraham. Abram, before he was Abraham, had 318 hired or paid staff members. This guy had a lot of flocks and herds and he needed to manage all his property. So wherever he traveled, he had not only his family, but 318 servants whom he armed and were able to be a standing army for him against the kings of Canaan. In fact, his wealth was on the par of some of the kings of Canaan in the book of Genesis. Then there was Job. He was the most righteous man, God said, Job chapter 1, Job chapter 2. But God blessed him financially. His portfolio is spelled out in Job chapter 1. He lost it all, but at the end, the Bible tells us at the end of Job, God blessed Job more at the end than even at the beginning. Then there was Joseph. From rags to riches, what a story. Sold into slavery by his brothers, by the providential hand of God. He becomes the second richest man in the world. Second only to Pharaoh. So it depends how you use it. One person wisely said that money is like manure. Stack it up and it stinks. Spread it around and it will make things grow. And some people know how to use it wisely to make things grow, to invest wisely, and then to invest spiritually in a wise way. I heard a story about a man who came to his pastor. He was a very wealthy guy, and he said, uh, he said, Pastor, um, I'm miserable. I have so much money. He said, when I had $50,000, I was very happy. Now I have $500,000, and I'm miserable. Pastor said, no brainer. Give away $450,000. You'll be happy again. The rich man said, well, pastor, it's not that easy. You see, money is sort of like an electrical wire. The more the juice, the tighter it's hold. And I've watched money strangle people, give them a jaded perspective in life. Now, Paul is going to ask these Gentiles to support the church. Let's get into it in chapter 8, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. I want you to notice that phrase. He's going to use it a few times. And you know what he means by that? He means that God, by His grace, has allowed churches, people, to give money to Jerusalem. It's one of God's gracious things that He's going to give them an opportunity to give financially. That's a grace. It's an opportunity. That in great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. He's speaking of the Macedonian churches just a few miles north. Thessalonica and Philippi. Paul was taking an offering from them as well and now from Corinth. 
For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of ministering to the saints. And this they did, not as we had hoped, but first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. Now, um, notice in verse 3 that they gave according to their ability. That is, they gave proportionally, proportionally to what God had blessed them with. If they had more, they gave more. If they had less, they gave less. They gave proportionally. But he says they gave beyond some of them. They gave beyond their ability. In other words, it actually would hurt them. It would be a sacrifice for them to give the money to Jerusalem. But if Jerusalem was the one that gave us the apostles and started this whole thing to begin with, blessed us spiritually, well, then we'll sacrifice. And there is a principle in giving. We should give proportionally. I don't think there's a certain amount you should be told to give. It's up to you. It's in your heart before God. The amount really isn't as important as what's in the heart behind the amount. But there is the principle of does it cost you something, right? Does it cost you? Is there a sacrifice involved? One day Jesus was in the temple. And he probably just found an inconspicuous little niche to lean up against. And he was just watching people. Have you ever done that? Watch people as they come to church or watch people in the mall as they shop. It's, it's fascinating just to sit and just watch people's mannerisms. Well, Jesus watched opposite the treasury people putting money into the treasury. It's recorded in Mark chapter 12, the end of the chapter. And he noticed that the rich would come in and give quite a large amount of money into the temple treasury. And according to tradition and even some hints of the scripture, the rich would sometimes give ostentatiously with the flowing robes, the sound of a trumpet, even an announcement. Not unlike some Christian ministries today that announce, so-and-so gave this large amount for our ministry. And Jesus watched how people were doing that. Then he noticed a poor widow. Keep in mind, in those days, they had no welfare system. They were not taken care of by the government. She had no husband. She was reduced to the level of a beggar, basically, as a widow. And she put in two mites, which is a quadrants, or her her offering totaled about three-eighths of a cent. Three-eighths of a cent. What can that buy? How far is that going to go? Then Jesus said, boys, come here to his disciples. This is a paraphrase. (laughs) This woman just outgave all those big givers because they gave out of their abundance. They have so much left over, really wasn't much of a sacrifice, but she gave out of her poverty, out of her own livelihood she gave. God counts things differently than we do. God's bookkeeping in heaven is so different from ours. 
It's not the amount. It's what's behind the amount that counts. There's a sacrifice involved. When David wanted to build a temple, remember his heart was filled with his desire. I want to build my God a house of worship. And he had grandiose schemes. Well, he went to a threshing floor on the Mount of Moriah, a raised platform where there was a rock surface. And it was owned by a fellow named Arana. It was his property. And as king, he could have demanded that it be given to him. He was the king. You give this to me. We're going to build a house of God. But he said, Arana, um, you have the perfect spot for what's in my head and in my heart to build for God a temple. I'd like to buy this from you. And Arana did the right thing. He submitted to the king's authority and position and said, well, king, I'll give it to you. You're the king. This is for a spiritual reason. I'm not going to gouge the king. I'm not going to sell it to you. I'd like to give it, tithe it, donate it to you. David said, oh, no, I'm going to buy it full price. Whatever is the full price that you'd sell it for, fair market price, I'll buy it. They went back and forth. Oh, no, O king, I want to give it. It's for God. David said, I will not give to God something that doesn't cost me. It's got to cost me something in order for me to give it to God. So you sell it to me at your property. It'll cost me something. Then I'll offer that as property for, for the Lord. I'm not going to offer God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. There's the principle of sacrifice, and we see it here in these verses. And he mentions in great trial of affliction and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. They gave the best. They were liberal, gracious, generous. God loves a cheerful giver, the ninth chapter of this book tells us. Be careful that you don't give God leftovers. Israel was told to bring the best lamb, the best bullock, the best fruit, the best grain, not the leftovers. Had to be a lamb without spot and blemish, free from inherent or external defect. The best, the firstlings. Cain and Abel brought a sacrifice back in Genesis. And Abel brought the firstlings of his flock, the very best. So many times people's mentality is, well, honey, what are we doing with that old piano or those old toys that are chewed up and beat up? We had to give them to the church. We've used them. We've extracted the best life for ourselves. Now let's give them to God. No, what they ought to do is go out and buy the best and donate that to somebody. They were freely willing, it says in verse 3, imploring us with much urgency. They asked us if they could get involved in this. We want to be a part of this. That's awesome. Do you hear the story about the $1 bill and the $20 bill that we're talking to each other one day? And the $1 bill said to his friend, he'd recognized him, he hadn't seen him for a while. He goes, hey, how you been? I haven't seen you in a long time. Where have you been? He goes, oh, I've, I've been a lot of places. Um, I've been in the stock market a little while. I've been on a cruise, made my rounds around the ship, came back. I've been at the malls, been at the movies, you know, making the rounds, the usual. What about you? The 20 said to the $1 bill. The $1 bill said, oh, you know, it's been the usual for me, church, church, church. 
Oh, not the Macedonians. Not the Macedonians. They implored us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And this they did, not as we had hoped, but first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. That, that's where it all begins. You know, giving to the Lord, first of all, God asks, you know, we usually mark off 10%. That's a little erroneous. That's really wrong. But we say, you know, I'm going to give God 10%. Listen, if that's true, God's allowed you to keep 90. You ought to be so thankful for that. I know some people that have given 90% of their income and kept 10%. Now, it's not a formula, but the idea is that when you give yourself first to the Lord and you realize, I belong to the Lord anyway. Everything I am and have comes from Him, and He's been so good to me. And so I give myself first to the Lord. I place myself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is my reasonable service. And then when God says, okay, there's a need in Jerusalem, Absolutely, I want to get involved in it. And one of the things I do love about this fellowship, and I would even generalize it, having traveled the world, American churches, we are the most generous nation in the world. God has blessed us, and yet we are the most generous, and I thank God to be living in a nation that has a Christian base and background, although we may have strayed from it in many ways, that has that basis of generosity at it where people are willing to give to things. When we hear of somebody hurt in New York City, I want to give, I want to be involved. When we hear of an opportunity overseas, I want to get involved. It's beautiful, it's a healthy thing. They gave themselves. So we urge Titus, verse 6, that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything, in faith in speech, in knowledge, in diligence, in your love for us. In other words, I'm giving you straight A's in these subjects. Love, faith, etc. You're good at that. Straight A's. There's something else you should excel at, and that is the grace of giving to others. Get an A in that. Don't get a C in that. Get an A in that. Don't be average. Be excellent in that. Excel in it. Abound in this grace also. Now... um, He says, I speak by, not by commandment, verse 8, but I am testing the sincerity of your love and the diligence of others. Martin Luther once said, there are three conversions that are necessary. Number one, the conversion of the heart. Number two, the conversion of your mind. And number three, he said, the conversion of your purse. In other words, your pocketbook. That's the old term for pocketbook. And then he noted that of all those conversions, the third is usually the last and the hardest to convert. Because we're so used to living with, well, it's mine. And God would say, excuse me? Didn't it say somewhere you've been bought with the price? You're not your own, you're mine, everything. I bought you with my own blood. So that means he's Lord, right? And if as Lord, he directs you, directs your life, directs your service, directs your finances, he can do anything he wants. And we should always be open to that. We've been bought with a price. We belong to him. I found something in a, it was a Christian uh, newspaper. It's from Mississippi. It's called Church News in Mississippi. 
It says there's a disease which is particularly virulent in this part of the 20th century. It is called cirrhosis of the giver. (laughs) It was actually discovered around 34 A.D. And it ran a terminal course in a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. It is an acute condition which renders the patient's hand immobile when it attempts to move from the billfold to the offering plate. The remedy is to remove the afflicted from the house of God since it is clinically observable that this condition disappears in alternate environments such as golf courses or clubs or restaurants. Oh, the money looks a whole lot different when it's something we want. And so even Paul is encouraging the early Christians to look at it as a blessing, as a gift. It's more blessed to give than to receive. In fact, look over at chapter 9. Let's just peek ahead. Let's cheat a little bit. In verse 6, But I say, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly, nor of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver, a hilarious giver. Does that describe you? Are you a hilarious giver? That's what the word means. Ha, ha, ha. Wee, I get to give. All right. I think we have a long way to go, don't we? I mean, at best, some of us see it as a duty, an obligation. But is it an opportunity? It seems that this church saw it as an opportunity for they approached Paul and said, Hey, don't leave us out. We'd like to get involved, you know. And they gave freely. I love verse 8 and the following verses. And I'll tell you why. He says, I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. Paul's saying, I am not making this giving mandatory. I'm not saying, if you're really spiritual brothers, you'll give to this ministry. He doesn't make it mandatory because he is not testing their obedience. He says, I'm testing the sincerity of your love, the depth of your love. That's all. He could have said, I am the Apostle Paul and you will give to this. But he didn't usurp any kind of authority. He's not making it mandatory. And giving should never be mandatory. And listen, giving should never be pressured. I hate hype. Yes, the Bible does speak about money. But the Bible doesn't speak about money nearly as much as a lot of preachers speak about money. Now, we're speaking about money tonight because that happens to be the text and the context. We're going through the Bible, and whenever the Bible speaks about family, we speak about family. If it speaks about baptism, we speak about baptism. If it speaks about money, we speak about money. We go through the whole Bible. A woman came up to me one Sunday, and she goes, Why didn't you mention baptism today? I said, It wasn't in my text. Well, you should mention baptism. I said, No, I shouldn't. I should mention baptism. Is baptism on every page of the Bible? Is the family on every page of the Bible? If you teach through the Bible, eventually you'll cover every single subject that God has on His heart, and you'll happen to cover it with the emphasis God gives and the context that God gives. It's the safest way to go through any truth. The Bible does speak about money doesn't speak nearly as much about money as some people do. But it does mention it. 
And he never says, you should do it. He says, I'm not speaking by commandment, but I'm testing the sincerity of your love for others. We have in the church, and they're not even that visible, are they? The, the agape boxes. These little wooden boxes. People come in the first thing if they've never entered. What are those all about? I said, that's how we take an offering. They said, that's how you take an offering? Don't you take a formal offering? I said, no, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing unbiblical. It's perfectly natural. It's fine. But we do it with an agape box. And that is because when we first started our Bible study down the street, we started with a coffee can. It would feel awkward to have five people and say, now we're going to receive the evening offering with just a group of us sitting around with a Bible study. Yet people wanted to give. They came to me and they said, we want to support the rental of this apartment house and the buying of the coffee and the cookies. We just want to be a part of it. I said, all right, there's a Folgers coffee can. We'll cut a slit in it. You can put whatever the Lord lays on your heart. Then we grew to about 75 and then 100 people and we kept the coffee can. Then when we moved into the theater and there were more people, there were 300 almost the first Sunday. And people said, now what are you going to do? You, you know, there's more people. It's hard to all line up for one coffee can. I said, well, put two coffee cans in, one on each side. Make it easier for them. And we, we, added, we added coffee cans. There wasn't Starbucks back then, so it was just Folgers, but it worked. The reason that we did that and didn't take or receive a formal offering is as soon as we moved from California into Albuquerque, and I was talking to people about ministries and what they had seen, I realized that this city is a crossroad city. It's a, it's a major intersection of two huge freeways, which means people travel through it from one place to another destination. It goes across country sideways and north and south. And every evangelist and ministry and his brother and dog show were coming through and taking offerings from this town. And we just happened to come here after this huge campaign had come through. I won't mention his name. But he took an offering every night and he took it with trash cans. And he'd say, I want these trash cans full by the end of the night. And he offended people. I think he offended God. And I think people that had any kind of conscience at all or biblical balance were offended. And some got up and started to leave. And he said to them in the middle of his, I wouldn't call it evangelism, whatever it was, he just said, you wouldn't leave a restaurant without paying the tab for the meal, would you? You've just received a good meal tonight and you should pay for it which turned people off even more. And so I thought, you know, the last thing I want to be known for is asking people for money. I want to be as above reproach as we can. So people can come here and say, it's another money-grubbing church. There's that sermon about money. Or they're always receiving that offering. People come and they say, when are you going to take the offering? We've been here now for four weeks. You haven't taken an offering. <laughs> say, well, stick around because you're not going to See us receive a formal offering. There's boxes that the Lord lays on your heart. It's like the coffee can. There's just a lot of them. I detest ministers speaking as if God is broke. As if God's about to hang up his going out of business sign. Please support God. He's going under. God owns a cattle on a thousand hills. 
There's nothing too hard for the Lord. Yes, he uses people to do it. It doesn't come miraculously from heaven into the boxes. But you know what? It's God's work. And if God wants it to keep going, great. If God doesn't want it to keep going, I'm out of here. That's all. I'm not going to hold on to something or try to build a kingdom. You know, I, I want to be where God's moving. And if God's not moving, I'll be where he's moving. If God's moving here and God provides the funds, great, we'll use them. And I love this. I don't speak by commandment. It wasn't mandatory. That's why I don't have pledge Sundays. Promise for the next year. What will your commitment be? I don't do God's laying it on my heart. There are 40 people tonight here with $1,000 each. I'm feeling it over here. There's, I don't do that. It's God's work. And I feel that God has the dole to support His work and can lay it upon people's hearts without hype. They can give freely. And Paul, I think, felt the same way. Mark Twain, I loved it. Mark Twain said that he went to church one day and he was ready to give until the preacher kept haranguing the people about the offering so long, he was so angry, so livid, that not only did he not give what he said he was going to give, but when the offering plate came around, Twain said, I took some out of it. (laughs) I don't recommend that. And here's why. Here's why it should be freely. And here's why we should give ourselves and give our time and our resources. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, think of what he gave up in coming to this earth. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Philippians says, He didn't think it was robbery to be equal with God, but he emptied himself. Ekenosen is the Greek. The kenosis, the emptying, the pouring out, the incarnation, God becoming flesh. And when he came to this earth, he came as a peasant. He didn't come with the angels announcing uh, to Rome that he was coming, just to a few shepherds in Bethlehem. He was born in a stable, not a hospital in Rome somewhere. He didn't hang speakers, a PA system from the moon. I'm coming down. He just came as an infant, as a peasant, as a baby and astonished the world with his humility. He was rich, but he became poor for our sakes. And in this, I give my advice. It is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago, But now you must also complete the doing of it. That is, there was a readiness to desire it, so also may be a completion out of what you have. You get what he's saying. It's great that you have good intentions. You made a promise. Now it's time to keep it. You don't don't have to promise it. It's not mandatory. Don't promise it, in fact, unless you're going to do it. But if you you said you were going to get involved like those in Macedonia, well then, you know, in, in a sense, nicely, spiritually saying, cough it up. Bring it to the table. I'm going to Jerusalem. So if, you, you, if you're going to participate, now's the time to complete the work because Titus is going to be there and Titus is going to receive the offering and we're going to take the delegation and head down to Jerusalem.
See, about a year before this, they had promised that they would be involved. Titus came through. Paul is now writing and saying Titus is coming back. So the offering is going to go on its way. Follow through with it, just like a good golf swing. Follow through with your commitment. For if there is a first willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Give out of whatever God has given you. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but by an equality. Now at this time your abundance may supply their lack, that their abundance may also supply your lack, that there may be an equality. Now maybe he means that you're going to give to them and they need your gift now, and in the future they may be financially at a stage when you're financially at a lower economic stage, they'll be able to help you out. Or maybe he means that they have blessed you spiritually by the work that left Jerusalem and ended up in Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth, that this gospel work has blessed you, this spiritual work, and you are now supplanting, you're giving back materially. He could be meaning that. It's hard to discern exactly what he means by that statement. As it is written, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. He's quoting an interesting passage about manna. Manna. In Exodus 16, God promised manna would come down every morning, remember? And uh, God said, when you go out, gather only what you need, no more, for that day. Hence, give us this day our daily bread. Depend on me one day at a time. Don't hoard it up and think, oh, I'm going to get my week's worth today so I can kick back tomorrow and the next. Because when some of them tried to hoard and stack it up, it started stinking. It decayed and it stunk. It was a rotten smelling substance if you left it a couple days. Imagine bad fish out on the counter for a few days. It's like, oh man, get rid of that stuff. So God made sure that though it tasted good, it really stank if you tried to hoard it up. So no matter, the Bible says, Exodus 16, if some gathered a little and some gathered much, everybody had an equal amount. They must have shared with one another. There was an equality that spread throughout the camp. They shared their resources. Manna fascinates me. You know, the children of Israel complained about it, right? Because it was great stuff, but after a while, you know, the same meal every day for 40 years, it's tough to handle. And they complained way before the 40 years. Two years into it, they were just saying, I hate this. The Bible describes it as as tiny white substance the size of coriander seed. But it tasted like wafers mixed with honey. A sweet, doughy substance. You know, sweet, doughy substance. Like a Krispy Kreme glazed donut. (laughs) Well, think about it. Wafers mixed with honey. That's very similar to that. So now when I eat a Krispy Kreme glazed donut, I think, manna. Though you can keep Krispy Kremes for a few days, they don't stink. But God made sure that the manna from heaven, if they hoarded it, did stink. And they could make this substance. They could cook it. They could knead it. They baked it. I'm sure that they had a banana bread. They had um, manna souffle. They had, of course, manna cotti was a 
was a staple because it just it, it comes with it. There were so many things they could make out of it. But they had to take it day by day. And then obviously there was this equity, this sharing within the camp so that everybody had, had enough. None left over, none too little, none too much. And so this is the principle of sharing of equity. In other words, we should gather what we need and we should share what we can, not hoarding stuff up for ourselves. That's the principle. But thanks be to God, he says, who puts the same earnest care for you in the heart of Titus. For he not only accepted the exhortation, but being more diligent, he went to you of his own accord. Titus was the guy sent by Paul to be in charge of taking the offering. Paul didn't go. Paul didn't handle the money himself. He sent Titus to do it. And again, just as they gave voluntarily, without hype, without mandatory commandment, so Titus, of his own free will, volunteered. I don't think Paul had to go up to Titus and say, Titus, you need to be the one to do this. I think perhaps he shared it with the friends that he was traveling with, that we need a volunteer to, to go and do this. God's called me to strengthen the churches, and I'm writing letters, and I'm staying here for a while. And Titus said, I'd love to go. I want to go. Now, there is another principle that I want you to notice with this. Titus wanted to be involved, and so he was involved, and Paul then commissioned him. Sometimes people think that I'm going to walk up to them after a few months, and I'm going to say, as I was praying, God laid you on my heart. And there's a ministry that I see that you need to be doing. And you think, Skip hasn't done that to me yet. Bob Church, Dave, none of these guys have come up to me and done that to me yet. Get used to it. It's never going to happen. You know how ministries have started around here? Almost all of them or many of them. Somebody comes and says, hey, I have an idea. In fact, I see a need that you guys aren't fulfilling. There's this thing that needs to happen. There's this group that needs to be ministered to, etc. And we listen to it. And if it's something that we also sense is a gap, is a hole, and is a legitimate ministry, usually I smile real big, put my arm on their shoulder and go, welcome to the ministry. What do you mean? (laughs) Well, you're going to do... Oh, no, no. I'm the one that just sees the need. I'm not going to be the one to do... Oh, no. It doesn't work that way. If you saw the need and nobody else saw the need like you see the need, you can articulate it so well. Obviously, God's laying it on your heart like nobody else, so you ought to at least try it. Well, I'm not really... I don't know if I'm called to do it. And they find often when they step out in faith, wow, this is fun. This is exciting. This is great. This is fulfilling. I think I am called. I had an assistant pastor years ago who swore he wasn't called into the ministry. I I could never get in front of people, he said. He turned out to be one of the best Bible teachers, speakers, and representatives for Christ and his kingdom. Titus volunteered. Paul said, go for it. He did it of his own accord. He wasn't drafted. It was voluntary. And when we have sent with him now notice, I, just let me just give you a preview of this so you can make sense of these verses. He's going to speak about three people. Titus, the kingpin guy everybody knows, the brother that came from them, probably from Macedonia or Corinth that they knew really well, and then our brother, a brother that 
was also known by Paul's entourage, these three would be commissioned to handle the finances. So let's read it all together. There's Titus, then verse 18. We sent him with the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. In other words, you know him. Don't even have to mention him by name. For the sake of credibility, he has already a good reputation. Not only that, but who was also chosen by the churches to travel with us with this gift, which is administered by us to the glory of the Lord himself and to show your ready mind. Avoiding this, that anyone should blame us in this lavish gift, which is administered by us. Providing honorable things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. To Paul the Apostle, the handling of money was very, very important. And he was accountable. It wasn't like, well, you know what? God's called me to this ministry and I don't stand before man. I just stand before God. It's none of anybody's business. He didn't believe in that philosophy. He wanted to make sure he was above reproach before God and his conscience and before men. And so it was going to be handled by a team. Paul's not even involved. Titus, a brother from Macedonia and or Corinth, and another guy who's going to handle the money. He wanted to be above reproach. Keep a marker here. Go left. A few chapters to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Let's just refresh our minds with something we have already read some weeks back. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also on the first day of the week, which is Sunday... Let each of you lay up something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. I like that. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. And notice this. But if it is fitting that I go also, then they will go with me. Notice how careful Paul is about the handling of money. Now, he could have said, I am the great Apostle Paul. You know it. Galatia knows it. Macedonia knows it. We all know it. So just give me the money and I'll handle it. Doesn't do it. He lets them select somebody. And he says, I don't even know if I'm going to go. If it's fitting, if you think it's okay that I go, I'll also be involved. But he doesn't usurp authority. He was very careful about handling money. And I'm also careful. I never look at the finances. I never look at who wrote what check. I never see any of it. And I don't want to touch it. I don't want to know. We have people that collect it and count it, and we have a board of directors that approves the budget, and there's a strict accountability, and there's a strict accounting at the end of the year by an independent auditing firm to make sure that every single penny is above reproach. And if it's not, they report to our board a recommendation. And we took this off of the template of Paul the Apostle. Be very careful with it. Be above reproach. So I'm always leery of somebody saying, well, I don't really have to report to anybody, any man. It's just me and God. God's called me. That person's life is out of order. God places a high priority on human accountability. And even the great Paul Apostle, Apostle Paul saw that and practiced that. Verse 22, and we have sent with them our brother, 
whom we have often proved diligent in many things, but now much more diligent because of the great confidence that we have in you. If anyone inquires about Titus, he's my partner and fellow worker concerning you. Or if our brethren are inquired about, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. The church is to reflect the glory of Jesus. The church is to be glorious in its testimony. And so Paul calls the church here the glory of Christ. Therefore, show to them and before the churches the proof of your love and of your boasting, of our boasting on your behalf. And so we think of the words of Jesus as we close this chapter. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust can corrupt, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. How can you do that? By seeing that your life belongs to Him, you're bought with a price, and everything you own is His. And He has the freedom. And we should, I think, make it a point of, if not daily, weekly, or periodically, reviewing our, our lives, our resources, and asking God, Lord, is there something you want me to be doing with the resources that I have that I'm not doing Please tell me, Lord, reveal it to me, that I might be your obedient vessel. I see it, Lord, as a grace, as an opportunity. George Truett, great Bible teacher of many yesteryears, was down in Texas. That's where he preached. And he, went, he was invited to a millionaire's house one night, very wealthy immigrant. And he was invited for supper. And at supper, this wealthy man took him to the top of the house. He was in a large field. And on top of the balcony, he, he pointed out in one direction where there were oil derricks dancing up and down in the field, the oil pumps. And he said, everything I own, everything in that direction that you see belongs to me. He said, I came here 25 years ago without a penny from whatever country. And I worked hard. And now everything in that direction that you can see I own it. Then he took him to the other side of the balcony where the grain fields were, and he said, everything that you see in that direction I own. I came here penniless 25 years ago. Now I own it all in both of those directions. And George Truett pointed up to heaven and said, how much do you own in that direction? How rich are you in heaven? How much treasure have you laid up in the kingdom? Now how are we to invest when it, and, and I really do look at it as an investment. Some people think, well, you find the neediest ministries, those that are struggling the most. Be careful with that. There is some credence to that. But you have to make sure that it's a legitimate need and that those that are working behind the ministry, in the ministry, are seeing fruit. Fruit. And here's why. It's in Philippians um, chapter 4. I just, yeah, you, you got two minutes, so it won't take me more than that. I'll, I'll close in two minutes. Two and a half minutes. It says, I'm looking at my watch. Now, we have insight in these verses of heavenly bookkeeping. Verse 15, fourth chapter. Now, you Philippians know... Also, that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you did send aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, 
but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. I seek fruit that abounds to your account. There are so many causes out there. How do you know which cause to give to? Well, I seek fruit that would abound to your account. In that verse is an ancient Greek financial term that means to put something on account on the credit side of one's ledger. Credit side of one's ledger. He's saying, you supported my ministry. It's not that I needed the gift, but I did use it for your sake. That is, I went out and preached. And whatever fruit resulted from my ministry, whatever salvations happened, God in heaven will put that to your account. On the credit side of your ledger, fruit will go to your account. So in heaven, when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, yeah, I'm going to get my rewards for going out and preaching the gospel, but we're going to share the same reward because I couldn't have done it without your help. So the fruit, God will put it on your side of the ledger to your account. So I don't necessarily respond to all the letters that say, you've got to give or this ministry is going to fold. I question, why is it going to fold? What is the fruit? What are the results? What are they doing? What are they doing? And then what is the doctrine that they're teaching? How close is it to the heart of Jesus? I want to lay up treasures in heaven. If I invest money in the stock market, I'm I'm not going to get a losing stock. I want to get a stock that will yield interest. And so I want to find a ministry that's seeing results, people coming to Christ, churches being planted, results, because I want fruit that will abound to my account. So whenever I get an appeal letter, especially one that's begging for money because they're about to fold, I treat it very, very cautiously. I'm looking to invest to see a good yield in the kingdom of heaven. Heavenly Father, all that we have is yours. You made us. You have given us, your word says, the ability to work, the ability to get wealth. Give us now the wisdom to disperse it. Lord, it's not that 10% of what we have is yours, 100% is yours. We've been bought with a price. We don't own ourselves anymore. When we came to Jesus, we, we handed you our life. We gave you the pink slip, we might say, the owner's certificate. And so, Lord, you have absolute right to tell us where to go in our lives, what to be involved in in ministry. Some of that is indicated by our our gifts, our abilities, and some of it by our resources, Lord. Whatever you have given to us, help us to be responsible and to be wise because we're not owners of it, we are stewards of it. And we must give an account to you for it. And Lord, as we support your work in the local church, as well as your work elsewhere in missions and in in ministries of helps that are going on, help us, Lord, to understand, to find out what's going on in terms of fruit. Not always just need, but fruit. That we might be wise investors 
and do what Jesus told us to do. Lay up treasures in heaven. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.